Hello, hello, hey there, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Thanks so much for joining in. I hope everyone is doing well, and I don't know, just feeling good. So to continue our exploration of industry's influence on health and health policy, in this episode, I will be chatting with Dr. Andrea Saltelli. He recently wrote a paper titled, Science, the Endless Frontier of Regulatory Capture. In this episode, he will tell us what regulatory capture is and what cultural capture is as well, what an epistemic ladder of corruption is. In a previous episode, we talked a little bit about epistemic corruption. So if you scroll back in the podcast episodes, you'll be able to learn more about that epistemic and how all of these things impact science and policy. Why should we care about that? Because what impacts policy impacts all of us. He used case studies in his paper to demonstrate various examples of regulatory capture, and we will talk about some of those because I think it will help us understand the concept of regulatory capture or the concept of cultural capture better. And we will also discuss ways to make regulatory capture less of an issue, right? Um, Because right now it seems like it's a real problem, and we'll hear more about that in the podcast. Who is Dr. Saltelli? Dr. Saltelli has done research on physical chemistry, environmental sciences, and applied statistics. His main focus is on sensitivity analysis of model outputs, where statistical tools are used to interpret outputs from mathematical or computational models, and something called sensitivity auditing, which is an extension of sensitivity analysis to the entire evidence generating process in a policy context. And I will link to his bio, so if you are interested in learning more about those things, you can. Till 2015, he has worked at the Joint Research Center of the European Commission, leading a team devoted to econometrics and applied statistics. Between 2016 and 2020, he was associate professor at the Center for the Study of the Sciences and Humanities at the University of Bergen. His recent work includes the reproducibility of scientific results, principles of modeling, ethics of quantification, and what we're going to talk about today, the regulatory capture of science. So hold on a few seconds here while I connect to him. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Andrea Saltelli, for joining me today on Causes or Cures. And we're going to chat about the paper I read that you wrote, Science, the Endless Frontier of Regulatory Capture, which is a really interesting and timely topic right now. But I thought maybe to start, can you tell us a little bit about you and the work you do? Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, thanks for, for inviting me. I um, was born as a chemist, uh, working a lot on modeling uh, of chemical systems, but that eventually I went into statistics, applied statistics, worked on model quality, uh, model um, uh, verification of, of uh, the quality of mathematical models, and more recently worked a bit on sociology of quantification, ethics of quantification, and this of uh, working on 
regulatory capture is a bit kind of uh, a side uh, a track of my work. It's not my main line of investigation, but I found it very, very interesting uh, uh, to to put so with a number of uh, of colleagues. And and where are you located? Are are you still at the the Center for the Study of Sciences of the Humanities in in Norway? Is that right? Uh, uh, yes, I'm I'm a guest. I am a guest at the um, uh, at the Center for the Study of Science and Humanity in Bergen, but I'm physically. Uh, and living a uh, base and living in uh, Barcelona in, in Catalonia in Spain. Oh, nice! So I I go to uh, apart that now most of the lessons are, are done online. So when I need to teach to Bergen, I either go to Bergen or I do it online. Okay, great. Well, let's jump into this topic now. Some people may who listen to this podcast they may not know what regulatory capture is. So I thought we could start there. Do you mind telling us? what regulatory capture means? Well, yes, uh, regulatory capture is something which is studied by mostly by the economists and uh, has to do with situation in which uh, uh, a kind of regulator is created to over with purposes of oversight over a number of industries and eventually the industries themselves um, uh, kind of capture the regulator and make it in such a way that the regulator, instead of defending the general interest, defend the interest of those uh, that those which should be regulated. This is in, in a very uh, summary description what the regulatory capture is about. Some people talk uh, of a cycle of regulatory capture. And you mentioned it, it was traditionally considered an economic term or applied to economics but yeah economics administration yeah okay I would say yeah and, yes. and now we're gonna sort of look at it um with scientific regulatory bodies i suppose uh, yes because the, the interest i mean the reason i got interested is the following i worked a lot on uh, the crisis of science intended this, uh, you know, you may have heard about the reproducibility crisis, but there are deeper reasons for this uh, crisis of science. And one of these is science being now very often kind of industrial science, um, science which is uh, executed or, 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 or programmed or, or, or run in the interest of some kind of uh, interest. Um, as opposed to science for the pursuit of common knowledge, common good. And uh, so this idea of the capture was an important element of this, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, science being used for um, non, uh, <laughs> for purposes which are not in the direction of the common good. So, uh, uh, and uh, uh, why is it so? Because regulation very often has to do with scientific argument, no? A scientific subject, for instance, how you measure the concentration of a given contaminant or how do you assess uh, toxicity of a given compound. I mean, there is a lot of uh, uh, in regulation which has to do with uh, scientific uh, uh, study of impact effects, uh, uh, measures, um, uh, concentrations. Uh, health effect and, and, and what's not. And for this reason, uh, uh, lobbyists, if they want to capture the regulator, need to be very good at that. They need to know about all that. 
And for this, they normally make sure that they have on, on, on their payroll um, uh, scientists or, or scientists who are favorable to the uh, line of production or to the, uh, to the activities of the sector which has uh, recruited them. Okay, so scientists who essentially work for the industries and represent their interest, industries in interest. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But then uh, the picture can become uh, uh, more sophisticated in the right. sense that it's not only scientists providing evidence which is then used by the industry, but then this um, uh, the industry becomes even more pervasive in this field because they can colonize a scientific journal, for instance. And so they, there are journals where, where industry can push industry science, which is uh, often in opposition to science being produced in academia or being produced by the regulators. So there is a fight on, uh, on the right evidence. Uh, you may have heard the expression merchant of doubts. In this case, again, yeah. The doubts are uh, yes. The doubts are mm, are built around the science when there is a science which is contrary to the interest of the producer of uh, whatever pesticide, genetically modified food, uh, fossil fuel, nuclear power. You know, you mention it. So uh, there is this activity of um, invalidating, let's say some science in order for another science eventually to, to prevail. Right, right. And I'm familiar with that, with how the tobacco industry did that in creating the concept of junk science to kind of downplay the, the side effects of, sm of smoking. Um, yes, yes. In fact, yeah. a few people know that the expression sound science, yeah. which sounds as positive, you know, sound yeah. science, <laughs> was in fact um, a creation of the lobbyist of uh, Philip Morris. And, and they wanted to, to say that the science which was uh, identifying in smoke a precursor of cancer were in fact, uh, you know, not good science. And uh, against this, they suggested the good science, right. which was good because it had, according to the lobbyist, higher um, quality, higher control in the procedure, and, and so on. Yeah, I, I I always go back to that because I think it's such a important example in history. And even for uh, I work in public health for public health people to know about that and how just even manipulating those the language and creating those slogans can can really um, change the course mm -hmm. of things. Um, I wanted to get into my next question because it, it relates to this. You wrote in the paper, knowledge and science are considered new currency of lobbies. I was wondering if you could explain that more. Uh, yes, this is um, something I have experienced uh, based on my, on my activity. And, uh, and the reason is the following. Uh, very often, um, both regulators and even policymakers don't have much resources to uh, to, to actually uh, produce the kind of science which would be needed to understand uh, a, an issue in depth. Whilst lobbies are normally, uh, well, they have, first of all, deeper pockets, 
and then they are very well organized uh, for producing all the evidence that might be needed for a policymaker. Sometimes for the obvious reason that they work in the field. I mean, imagine that you want to know something about uh, allocating frequency for transmission for mobile phone operator. Of course, those who produce, you know, those who uh, are in charge of this sector, we have a lot of data about this kind of problem. Uh, and so if you want to do some kind of regulation on this sector, probably the person you have to speak with to get some data and to get some understanding of the sector are the people who, are, who do the business in this sector. And this is why in this case, the lobbyist approach uh, the um, regulator or the politician and the currency which he brings to bear in this relationship is, is knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge is currency. The other question, your paper, you write about regulatory capture with, and we just talked about that. We're gonna talk about more about that, but you also use the term cultural capture and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about cultural capture and particularly how corporations might influence science writers and science bloggers. Um, you know, they've they've um, become more prominent today, and you know, as digital media has expanded and that sort of thing. But what what is cultural capture? What do we have to worry about there? Well, a cultural capture is defined as a situation whereby the regulator um, makes uh, operates in the interest of the of the regulated sector, not because he has been corrupted or paid or funded, but simply because he share the opinion that uh, of the of the regulated. For instance, imagine that you believe that uh, the agrochemical sector is a key sector for. I don't know for the um, uh, for your country or for the European Union or what's not or whatever, then you will have an interest to to protect the interest of this sector, and you may also be convinced that innovation in this sector is also what will drive eventually growth and profits and success of the sector. So you may be uh, very well disposed to world uh, innovation in the sector. Uh, uh, less, let's say, interested in looking to uh, what possible damage those innovation might do, for instance, to health. And they will eventually uh, come to see those who complain about possible uh, dangerous consequences of new technology, for example, in the field of uh, pesticide, as people who eventually, you know, they, they are a drag on the economy or they're a drag on research or they are not interested, you know, in the, in the well-being of the, um, of the entire country in a certain sense. So they are culturally led to, um, to promote and to encourage innovation and less, uh, 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 less inclined to look at the safety of the same innovation. Okay, okay. And um, we're going to get back to that later, I think, when we talk more about the precautionary principle. Um, so in your paper, you highlighted five case studies, mm -hmm. you described them, and they were meant to highlight an epistemic ladder of corruption. And I have some questions about each of those case studies, because they're very interesting. But what is an epistemic ladder of corruption and why should we care about that? 
Uh, yeah, it's a bit <laughs> about epistemology is, is a kind of a difficult word. It's, it's a word which is, uh, means um, uh, the study of how to study, or if you wish, how, how do we know that we know? What are the criteria which uh, ensure the quality of the knowledge we acquire? So this is the epistemology, you know, means uh, in which way uh, you uh, go about uh, making sure that, for instance, your scientific practice produce knowledge, which is, uh, in a sense, of a good quality. Um, how we go about knowing, okay? So, and the epistemic ladder is something like this. Uh, imagine that you start discussing uh, uh, the evidence produced by a regulator by saying that uh, the toxicity of this or that compound is not proven. Now, this is a strategy of uh, the uh, merchant of doubts. But then you may go one step higher and say that perhaps those results are not good because the methodology was not good. So they say you should choose a different methodology, a methodology which is more um, uh, likely to produce the result which the sector, uh, the regulated sector wishes to achieve. But then again, you might say, well, actually, the point is not this. The point is that it is not the regulator who should decide on the methodologies, because we in the sector, we know much better the field. So maybe we should be in charge of producing the methodology. In this case, what is being attacked more than the methodology is the authority of the regulator. So uh, the legitimacy, if you wish. So kind of uh, delegitimize de some kind of institution from being responsible for produce criteria for uh, the evidence which is needed in the course of the regulatory process. But then again, you can go to the um, kind of cultural capture we were discussing before. And in this case, you will be, um, you will be very much in uh, 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 defending a vision of science and technology as linked to progress and, and the common good, what in jargon we would call it some kind of techno-optimistic uh, vision. Uh, I mean, there is nothing bad in being techno-optimistic. The problem is that, of course, this should not ob uh, obfuscate the possible danger, uh, dangers linked to the introduction of a new technology, simply because we don't know how the new technology works at the moment of introducing this. So in this case, you, you move one level above, but then you can go even higher and you can say, well, after all, we know from experience that those problems don't need to be solved by a regulator because the market takes care of it. I mean, if a product is good, it will succeed in the market and the market will automatically kick out of the market the bad product and promote the good product. So at the end of the day, we don't even need the regulator because the market will take care of everything. This is a you know, the very uh, neoliberal, uh, uh, small government, uh, whatever you want to call it, vision of the world. But it's, of course, a vision of the world which goes very much into the direction of um, saying that uh, regulation is simply not, not desirable. So this would be the, the full trajectory of this uh, epistemic ladder. Now, starting from the particular measurement all the way to a vision of the world. So it's really about the, the it just goes right to the core of it, the foundation. The foundation could be corrupted or um, 
there's just so much influence there, you know, corruption at the very beginning that if we're not aware of that, we could really be eating a very biased story, um, so to speak. We're yeah. Being, we're yeah. Being fed go, go. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, so that's. So, so I wouldn't use the word. I mean, corruption. You know, corruption gives the idea of money changing hands. In this case, uh, uh, more than corruption is, I would use the word ideology. No, is uh, you push your ideology, maybe in, in perfectly good faith, but this is an ideology which helps. No, the the business you're responsible for to go about uh, its profits. So. Yeah. Uh, 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 corruption is really, you, you would leave the word corruption when some officer is really corrupted with money to, close, to look elsewhere when something wrong is being done. Often this is really not the case. It's more the case that, the, for instance, you may talk to a, to a politician and discover that the politician has the opinion that uh, the ethical guideline for the performance of medical research at a drug on research, I had the experience myself. No, uh, how how could you know this politician be led to believe that the existence of ethical protocol for the performance of medical research at a drug on research? Well, of course, someone you know put this idea on his or her mind, uh, and in this case, I wouldn't say that this guy or this person is corrupted. It's probably simply influenced. Influence. Okay. No, I appreciate that. That's a that's a an important distinction. That I think you just made there. So let's get into the specific case studies because I think they'll be able to uh, create a picture for people to better understand this topic. And I wanted to start with the pesticides, the pesticide case study. Could you tell us how that highlights regulatory capture? Well, in this case, uh, there is a lot of discussion in Europe. Uh, this rotates around the procedure of the European Food Safety Administration, EFSA, authority, pardon, European Food Safety Authority, EFSA, uh, uh, because there is a lot of um, discussion on how the advisory committee of this agency are composed, how many people are there who are defending um, industry position, how many of them have correctly declared those interests, and so on and so forth. And in the practice, Practicalities of this uh, great battle on what uh, uh, what pesticides should be allowed or forbidden, um, much rotate around the methodology. So, how should we perform experiments as to determine if uh, those compounds actually uh, kill the bees, the pollinators, or the insects in general? Uh, you may have heard uh, the story of the windshield effect. What is the windshield effect? People my age remember that once upon a time when you were driving through Europe, you had to stop uh, every hour or so to clean your windshield from the insects which were killed on your windshield. Uh, now you can drive for hours and you don't have to clean anything simply because there are much less insects around. Uh, some people who have done long-term monitoring uh, have spoken about a decline of insects in the order of 70 or 80 percent. Um, so um, there are many causes for this decline, but uh, people like me tend to believe that uh, pesticides play a key role. 
and among the insects which are killed are the bees. Uh, and the bees are important because they are pollinators. I mean, they are responsible for, for even for the crops uh, out of which we take our food. So if we by chance kill all the pollinators, we might experience a, a tremendous uh, um, lack of uh, food. We can create uh, hunger on a, on, a, on a gigantic scale, scale in, in the country affected by this uh, lack of, of pollinator. Now, how do you measure the uh, toxicity on the bees? Uh, given that those compounds that tend to bioaccumulate, and this is a word which means that uh, their level grows as a result of accumulate as a cumulative um, exposure. Uh, you have to allow for sufficient time of contact between the insect and, uh, and the pollutants so that you see the effect on the bees. What happens is that the bees simply die, or uh, in other cases, they have measured that the bees lose their capacity to find. Um, to find back their home, so they die. Uh, they die of uh, of starvation because they simply don't have enough food for if they cannot go back to their nest. Um, and so I would say that in this case, the, the big battle has really been on on how to measure the effect. So the activists, those who want to defend uh, the interest of the beast, in this case, work with academical people developing the method which would. Um, ensure that you can measure this bioaccumulation. Why industry pushes for method, uh, for way of measuring the impact of those pesticides, which don't take uh, don't take this into account. This is just an example. Okay, so how, what measurements are chosen to be used? Um, exactly the right. measurement, not only the exposure time, but also how far away the measure should be taken right. uh, from where the bees normally live, and uh, there are right. a number of details on which you can play, you know, to make uh, to, sure. um, to and, work uh, on your course. Yeah, being the voice of the bees is important because uh, bees are key to everything. I mean, our food source, uh, our ecosystem, so. That's, exactly. Yeah, I wish the bees had a voice um, themselves. Let's talk about the case study for trustworthy AI. Um, now, you wrote that this was a case of ethics washing. And what do you mean by that? Uh, Dunk, I use the expression ethic washing because uh, by uh, analogy with the expression um, uh, uh, greenwashing. Greenwashing is very well known expression to indicate when uh, a company wants to brush its own environmental credential and so they produce advertisement or, or behaviors which are very um, communicated to the public to the effect to show that those companies uh, you know, are green. So everyone wants to be green uh, even companies uh, extracting fossil fuel wants to be seen promoting uh, alternative energies, um, working on uh, energetic transition. So this idea of the greenwashing, I mean, is very, is very well, um, is very well established. Ethic washing is uh, similar, uh, and ethic washing takes um, uh, advantage of um, the instances which are created. Uh, uh, and the example I produce is European in the European Union, 
uh, when uh, some authority, for instance, the European Commission wants to uh, study guidelines for uh, a new technology, for instance, in this case, artificial intelligence, uh, which you may have heard is, is very important, is key to the success of the industry. Uh, everything needs to be digitalized in the new, uh, the new challenge must be green and digital. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you may have heard that there are many people who are, you know, consider the, the downside of these uh, technologies, for instance, the uh, danger that these technologies will create uh, some kind of new power. Uh, there has been the expression uh, uh, regulatory capitalism to indicate the state of affairs which is created why, thanks also to these technologies, uh, the consumers and the voters end up being dominated by a few big players. Now, what happens when, uh, for instance, the European Commission wants to uh, uh, study this phenomenon and how this could be um, regulated with a set of guidelines. Well, they, they create a working group and, and I refer here in uh, the experience of one ethicist who was enrolled in one of these working group and his comment was that he felt uh, rather lonely because there were very few ethicists in this working group on artificial intelligence, but there were many representative of the industry. And his experience was that uh, at the end of the day, this having formed this group to study guidelines for ethics uh, of the artificial intelligence ended up being a venue and a vehicle for corporate interest mm. to push their own agenda. So that uh, the, the final document, which was uh, to be worked out in agreement with all the people attending this kind of uh, collective, uh, was very much uh, reflecting also the position of the industry. So that, uh, for instance, to make an example, everyone will understand particular wording which was meant to um, express uh, condemnation or prohibition to work on autonomous lethal uh, weapon or intrusion on the privacy were mm -hmm. eliminated by the text because they were considered too too aggressive in a sense, not uh, toward the sector. Wow. So. Uh wording that would protect privacy was removed? Um, the, 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 let's say they were, um, uh, uh, yes, let's say in the, in, the, in the opinion which I quote of the opinion of these ethicists, they were uh, not, not all, the, of course, not all about privacy. They did not remove all that which concerned privacy, but they removed the, uh, the most controversial part of it uh, in the interest of uh, not um, antagonizing the representative of the sector which were also attending this meeting. Which is really interesting considering it's supposed to be ethics. And I, I did write down a quote that stood out. Um, one of the persons there wrote, the presence of four ethicists in a committee of 52 members is paradoxical. Yeah when you have, when your paper has the word ethics in it. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's the point. <laughs> that that sums it up, point. I think. <laughs> that's why uh, uh, this was a guy who, Metzinger is a professor of ethics, uh, was uh, complaining about uh, the way this was, uh, this entire exercise was run. Right, right, right. And even the word, you know, trustworthy AI, well, trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Um, exactly, because trust, because this is all the name of the game. You know, you want to yeah. be generating the in the in the consumer trust. Let's talk about your other case study, which involved the innovation principle. Um, basically, whenever policy or regulation decisions are under consideration, the impact on innovation should be assessed and addressed. That automatically uh, set up, set off. Uh, you know, warning signs in, in my brain, but let's talk about that. Why was that? A, a, what was the target here? Was it cultural capture? Um, I think that's what you wrote in the paper. And and also, was this taking a shot at the precautionary principle? We talk about that a lot in public health, the precautionary principle. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about how that principle relates to the innovation principle, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, uh, well, you all know that uh, the innovation principle has a long history, uh, comes from the Rio conference many years ago, and was the idea that in the running of human affairs and in the use of technology, uh, you should not um, uh, wait for the certainty of the damage before uh, exerting precaution in the adoption of certain technology of certain direction of uh, development. So. Uh, um, let's say the European Commission has used the principle in several, for instance, in the European Union is, con is well known, has been used um, and mentioned in several, in several documents. And so the industry felt that uh, something was needed to uh, contrast this principle. And so one association where with a lot of representation from industry, uh, which was a European risk forum, um, started to lobby to discuss the possibility that in order to accelerate uh, growth, uh, uh, especially in Europe, you would need more innovation. And uh, because uh, the precautionary principle could get into the way of this innovation, uh, one should be uh, keen to careful to rebalance the precautionary principle with a kind of antagonistic principle which says that uh, uh, before you introduce a new piece of legislation, you should make sure that this legislation does not hamper uh, the pace of innovation. Now, there has been numerous uh, battles and uh, political battles on this in, uh, in, uh, uh, um, in the political arena involving also academ ac academical researchers and, um, and defenders of the, uh, of the position of the industry. So this is a kind, I would say, continuous, uh, uh, continuous fight between various institutions with various opinion on this uh, uh, innovation principle. Uh, um, uh, and, and it's interesting that thanks to the, uh, you know, the democratic feature of our system, the principle, uh, the, the, let's say the application of the principle has been contrasted uh, by various uh, uh, member states and uh, authorities and you know uh, and has been um, uh, there is let's say on this a, a debate also in the public in the public arena it's not something which went under uh, under the radar so people are kind of uh, careful uh, but again this is really the case of um, which I was mentioning before now the cultural capture to create a vision of the world where uh, technology has to be looked at as an, uh, an occasion for, uh, for progress and growth. And uh, coming with this comes the vision that technologies can solve the problems created by technology itself. 
you know, and, and this is a kind of um, of um, uh, um, of approach which uh, I'm, I mean, we are not the only one to make this point. I mean, the other scholars uh, uh, which are mentioned who are mentioned in the paper who made the point is that very often regulators are keen to act on principle because if you can establish a principle, then everything can derive from the principle. So it's very strategic to game the system in the direction of creating principle to which you can then make uh, reference in particular instance of uh, conflict with the regulator. Uh, that, that makes sense. And I actually understand, I could see the conflict there, you know, between being overly cautious and um, or just, you know, the conflict between caution and innovation. I get that. I, I think there's something there where I, the part that concerned me when I read in your paper how the freedom of information request um, showed that industry intended to challenge some of the regulation that was already there on novel foods and pesticides and pharmaceuticals. I thought that was very concerning um, and could show how, you know, using that principle could not be good. Um, there has to be mm -hmm. a balance between those two principles, doesn't there? Yeah, but the, the, the tension is always there. Even in yeah. the United States, there have been tremendous attempts to use, uh, um, to kind of invalidate, for instance, the activity of the EPA, Environmental Protection Authority, right. uh, especially all those which concerned air quality, because the air quality standards are very bothersome for, uh, for industry, for the emissions. And yeah. so there have been a lot of... Uh, fight for repelling existing legislation protecting the quality of air and those are fights which are ongoing of course depending on the administration industry can get more or less uh, right. leverage but uh, i would say that this this tension between defending the health uh, of the citizen and uh, defending the interests of the uh, of the polluters in a certain sense is a, is a constant uh, is a constant tension yeah, and sometimes the research doesn't happen until later. That, that's a great example because I just read a paper on air pollution being linked to more and more diseases. You know, the evidence base just keeps getting bigger for that. Um, yeah. Of course, of yeah. course, of course. You know, many, you know, uh, emission, air emission, the latest data I saw by the WHO say that uh, uh, poor quality of the air is responsible between seven and eight million deaths every year, which is more than, uh, you know, yeah, uh, much more than what, what we have now with COVID. I mean, you know, these, those are really big numbers. So air quality is really something we should be very keen to, to protect. Yeah, I, the paper I just read linked it to uh, dementia, which I think, yeah, it, yeah, it was like it became a, a risk factor for that, too. Um, mm -hmm. No, these are all these are all concerns. Sometimes I wonder too when we hear when we think about the global warming crisis, and I often wonder. I wonder if we were if we weighed more on the precautionary principle at the beginning, where we would be. You know, because mm. it seems it seems like yeah, yeah. You, you, you can say. I mean, you can say that you don't need global warming to limit emission based on the number I just mentioned. I mean, you know, even without global warming. We would have a lot of interest in reducing uh, emission from from fossil fuels simply for the number of health effects yes. uh, they produce. I was mostly thinking of uh, um, respiratory and uh, pulmonary and and, yeah. and uh, blood circulation diseases, but you know, 
Yeah. You can surely say that. Yeah. Sometimes, well, sometimes we find out things later and we pay for it later, but the, mm -hmm. the people who want to make the quick profits don't care about yeah. that as much. Well, yes, historical industry fight uh, to the last mile. I mean, for yeah. those who have studied the controversy on asbestos, mm -hmm. uh, know that it took many, many years to have asbestos, uh, you know, withdrawn from, from the market because uh, it was a very know. prolonged fight. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, everyone, I mean, after a while, it was quite established that asbestos could uh, lead to epithelioma, but uh, the industry fought uh, uh, anyhow to to keep producing these as long as it could. Right, right. And people know know of these historical examples. So when we have ongoing exposures and um, we, we hear people pushing back and I, I just feel like, and, and there's also this crisis of trust that people talk about, you know, and I think if we don't address this type of influence, this industry influence, I, I don't see how we're going to build trust in the public because you can't just tell people to trust you know, you have, that trust has to be earned. They have to see that you care about them and you care about their health um, and things are being done to protect their health. But uh, yeah, I, I just, I always go back to that. The industries- uh, wait, wait, I, 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 yeah, like I comment that, I, I mean, in this sense, I, I perfectly agree. And you can say that now we experience so much, uh, so much uh, resistance to, to vaccines uh, but uh, this resistance uh, is also due to a long history of um, yes. bad science in the field of medical research. Uh, there was, a, uh, you know, medical research uh, not uh, identifying timely enough the danger of, uh, of sugar and pointing to cholesterol instead or, um, you know, uh, the, the yeah. big power of the pharma industry, the, the large literature, you know, describing how the pharma industry de facto um, exert uh, control on the on the on the on health uh, and on the medicalization of everything. I mean, you know, there is a lot one can 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 discuss here, but clearly, this uh, hostility to vaccine doesn't come from you know doesn't come from from the from the void. It comes from a history of um, misbehavior, I would say, from the medical industry. Mm. No, that that's a great point, and I think we have to address that. Um, and make the system better for, for people, mm -hmm. you know, um, otherwise, I mean, and we have to do that. Otherwise no one will know what's real or what's not, but we, we have to create some kind of standard. Exactly. We, yeah. we live in a world where, uh, where oh, people don't know yeah. what to believe. Yeah. This is uh, probably the most, um, saddening conclusion we could be aiming because, uh, because clearly we need science uh, yeah, now yeah. more than ever because we have so many problems uh, uh, affecting the, the, our planetary and, and, and personal health. Uh, and but if we start, um, if we lose uh, uh, all kind of hope uh, in science, uh, then you you know we are in for for a lot of troubles and. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a free for all. Nobody knows what to believe, and I think we're getting closer and closer to that point. Um, People just, they don't know who to trust. Uh, and um, and that's also an opportunity for people with less than altruistic motivations to move into that space and, you know, get people to trust them for the wrong reasons. So it's a tr there is a trust crisis, absolutely. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you this question. So why now, 
we see people pushing for regulatory or cultural capture. Um, what you know, let's call them industry people, whatever. But why have they been successful in recent years? Why, what you know, you ha- you just outlined these five case studies. Obviously, there are many others out there. Why are they having such success? Um, well, it's um, uh, because lobbyists are clever people. I mean, normally they are very well prepared and. Uh, um, they have a good knowledge of their um, subject matter, and they are also very creative. I mean, you know, these people at Philip Morris, you know, they have been incredibly, uh, when they created this idea of the sound science, sound epidemiology, they are really creative. They are, in a sense, they are brilliant. And more recently, I was, you know, one of the points we make in the paper, they have developed an even more sophisticated strategy, which is a strategy which is called the Guardians of Reason, after a book written by some French uh, sociologists and investigative journalists. Uh, and this strategy um, makes so that uh, they make use of trolls. You know, trolls is a person who lives on the social media pretending to be just uh, um, a normal citizen, but in fact is pushing on a particular agenda. So what they do here is to have trolls who um, for instance, defend the interest, the interest of a given industry, fossil, nuclear, GMO, agrochemical, whatever. And, and they do so by accusing uh, those who complain about, for instance, the issue of pesticide, accusing those people of being anti-science and presenting themselves as fact checkers. So people checking the facts. So we... <laughs> get the fact straight, but we, in this case, are people who defend the position of the industry. So you you can imagine the total confusion. You imagine the expression fact checkers um, associated with someone like the, I don't know, the Washington Post counting the lies of President Trump. But then you have a situation in which the fact checkers are, in a sense, those people who have an interest to defend and those who are accused of being uh, 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 producing fake news or lies uh, or being anti-science are the people who honestly intend to defend uh, the consumers, the, the citizen from some kind of environmental or ecological threat. Right, right. And and, and it's gray. It, there is a gray area there. I mean, I, it's fine. First of all, fact checker is a brilliant word. It, it goes back to junk science too, because it's exactly yeah. right, it's it's catchy, and it's like we're you know guardian of reasons, fact checkers, um, and of course they sometimes get it right. They they point out information that's wrong, um, but oftentimes, so you know in the case of pesticides, I'm always wondering, well, who is funding those people? Who are these fact checkers? Um, you know, because I think I would like to know who the fact checkers are. You know, who pays their bills, so to speak. That's important to know. You are right that it's not so easy to know because very often facts checkers are uh, totally uh, honest people who simply have been uh, led to believe in a a certain agenda which is favorable to certain kind of production. Uh, In fact, one of the... One of the main goal of these trolls, of this activity of penetration of uh, corporate agenda into uh, uh, via the use of trolls and new media, is to colonize uh, 
people. So to, to have more and more people following you and hence endorsing your vision of, uh, of things. So that at the end of the day, you may have people, uh, for instance, defending uh, pesticide, but this may not all be paid by, by the industry. Some uh. will, but many others will not. They simply will be people who have been convinced that there is a movement against science, you know? So imagine someone who still lives on this kind of enlightenment ideal of science, shedding light on the obscurity against superstition and religion. And they perceive that there is a movement which is against science to reintroduce um, superstition. No, so if they live in this kind of, uh, uh, with this kind of uh, uh, image, with this kind of vision, they will, of course, will tend to, to mistake for, for, um, for superstition those who are instead not superstition, but uh, honest concern on the, on the health of the environment. Right, right. And anti-science is another catchy phrase, too. And nobody wants to be anti-science. Nobody wants to be anti-science. Yeah, right. exactly. exactly. Yeah. So you can definitely create an army against... Um, anyone who you call labels labels are well, power. I, labels are powerful labels yeah do. yeah and i think that the scientists are very often guilty of this because science there are fields like climate change is one and covid is another where scientists tend to present themselves they wish to present themselves as uh, a consensus no so mm -hmm. they say this is the science so uh, and outside there is only uh, yeah. Law, um, there is no law, there is only disorder, there is only corruption or whatever. And, and this is very wrong because especially on COVID, you know, the science, I mean, uh, uh, one should be very careful to, uh, to present science as a consensus, as monolithic, because science, this is not the way science is done in practice. Science uh, progresses through battle, conflicts, uh, theory, clashing with uh, among themselves. Uh, mm. And so trying to present science as you know, when the politicians say, I go by the science, this is always very, uh, I mean, troublesome because which science are you going by? There are, you know, there are, there are different theories on even on things on which we uh, don't maybe fight, but there are different theories around and different kind of knowledge you can use. And, and uh, of course, not those are not all equal. Right. You see, those are all different and also different in quality. There may be good science, bad science, or established science and less well-established science. Um, so, uh, but if you, mm, by pretending to, uh, to defend a single unitary consensus science, scientists themselves may be responsible for the loss of trust. They should, you know, acknowledge their own um, the plurality of view existing within the same side. This is the, first of all, this is not the way science works. And then this is dangerous because people then tend to become skeptic. Right, right. I agree with that. And um, I always tell people that too, you know, um, on social media, like don't insult people if they didn't get the vaccine. That never helps anybody. Like that's not, yes. how, you don't convince people that way. Um, don't insult. No, you said the big thing. Don't insult anybody. Yeah, this is yeah. really fundamental because if we enter into this culture of the insult, uh, normal people will back off. No, of course. I mean, normal people don't want to enter, you know, into this. They don't want to be insulted. They don't want to be, you know, the discussion. Yeah, to, I can't remember the uh, last <laughs> time I bought some 
bought something from someone who called me a jerk or an idiot, you know? I just, something like this. Yeah, nobody <laughs> wants to be. Yeah. And, and then I, just, I, I personally, I know I never pick up a fight on the social media. You know, when someone no. attacks me, I never reply. I don't want to do this well, kind of I thing. Think, but, but yeah. I think Sorry. social media, especially Twitter, uh, even Facebook, I think it's a horrible platform for discussing science. Mm. You're limited by your characters. You can't make edits, at least on Twitter. And then your ego is so tied into what you post that all, all yeah. of a sudden you have to defend a position at, at all costs and there's no backing down. Like, And I think people are very unaware of how much their ego plays into what they're doing. Um, I don't know. Luckily, I, I, I feel one of my strengths, I always try to tell myself, Aaron, you don't know anything. Like I, I like you stay humble, stay humble. Things change that like the vastness of what we don't know is so much bigger than what we know. Just stay humble. Um, yeah. That's kind of my take, but I, I think it, it becomes the clashing of egos um, of, of, you know, here, which, um, which isn't science either. Right. Like that's, ego is yeah something yeah, yeah. yeah but um i think the locking of horns so to speak and people become addicted to having having to be right i don't think that's yes. healthy either um uh, but at the same time i think one i'm not defending people who do this but when people say i'm following the science i think from a policy perspective they try to simplify it as much as possible to get people on board with the policy right and in some ways that can be, that can have its advantages um, because people oh. can't handle the nuances. They can't handle the discussion, um, exactly, yeah. especially with social media, right? Because it, it can become so murky and, and people don't do well with uncertainties. But I think where I don't, I, I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should simplify things that risk people finding out something that goes against that. And then they get angry. We have to mm -hmm. learn to communicate uncertainties better. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, in this case, uh, there is also responsibility from uh, the politician. Every time the politician do this maneuver, no, to uh, to to shield yeah. uh, to shield behind the science, they are not doing their work because their work is not to follow the science. Their work is to take decision, which may be inspired by the science, but right. you know they, they cannot be abdicated to the science. And I remember when Johnson in the UK said that uh, we go by the science. There were many scientists who objected to this. They said, no, 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 you are the prime minister. You know, this, the, the taking right. of decision is your responsibility, not our responsibility. We are providing you what we know, but then you, you right. it's not that, uh, you know, the decision are not driven by this, may, may be inspired, you know, taken right. into consideration what the science says, but the responsibility must be political. Otherwise you transform political problem into technical one, and this is a road to technocracy and dictatorship. This shouldn't happen. No, that's that's a very good point. Um, yeah, there shouldn't be a marriage between politics and science. They have to be unique um, entities for sure. Um, so this this brings me to my last question. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Um, is this like a David versus Goliath situation? Um, if, if we want to make this system better for the common good, for people, I think we should put people first, mm -hmm. right? And animals and the bees. What do we do? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, um, um, well, this is a complicated story. There should be one hour to discuss this, but probably we, are, <laughs> we, leave, 
we live a change of we live a new era no as uh, the printing press uh, created a new world so the new media internet has created a new world and we are now started inhabiting this new world where new rules apply and where everything is changing uh, at a very uh, at an increasing pace i mean uh, mm. you may have heard uh, pope francis using the word uh, rapidification uh, uh, zuckerberg used the expression move fast and break things so everyone has this kind of uh, 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 of idea in positive or in negative that you that things move fast no and, and we are brought uh, yeah. uh, tra transfer we are led by this gigantic wave of change which uh, uh, impose a, a, a new real you know in a, in, a, in the planet with in relation to science probably we need to develop a more mature uh, relation with science uh, uh, in a sense that uh, we shouldn't perhaps trust so much as trust science as respect science. So uh, maybe we should be circumspect, no? So uh, listen to what science says, but uh, take it with uh, some circumspection, you know, um, and asking questions as to where the science was produced, who is telling what and why, no? So we should take... Uh, Science as surely a privileged way to know to knowledge is clearly is is a privileged way to knowledge. Yeah, uh, of course, yes. But but yeah, but uh, it's not a religion, no. Uh, as everyone has <laughs> should have understood by now, it's not a religion, yeah. and we should go about science with a reasonable degree of uh, caution, you know, circumspection, uh, looking at where it comes from and try as much as possible to develop the skills which are needed to compare you know different uh, different mm -hmm. visions or different kind of evidence um, based on their quality uh, this is not some people make this uh, as a as a problem of scientific literacy i don't think it's a problem so much of scientific literacy of course scientific literacy is important and we should foster it and teach science and all that but i think it's more a cultural attitude, you know, an attitude whereby we don't use science to depict the world in black and white again. Because if we do this, then we don't need science. We can do this with religion perfectly well. So why did we develop science if then we have to look at the world in black and white? It's really, yeah. this, is, yeah. uh, this would be the way to go, a cultural, a, a progressive cultural uh, change in the way we live our relation with, uh, with science and with the new technologies. I like that. I have to have to change the culture. Mm. Yeah. Otherwise, I think we're going to be creating so many tribes and so many conflicts that will just implode somehow. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 And I always say when people are fighting in your own house, the only people who are truly happy are your enemies. They love when you're divided. Yeah. So. Uh, look, uh, I mean, the new, not by chance, the new media are being used by oh, yeah. someone who is very much mentioned these days. Uh, 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 to create uh, to create uh, uh, friction within a given country among different uh, social groups. I mean, yeah. you know, this is uh, a strategy of tension, no? Which is now played very very effectively He's by very several... clever at that for sure. Yeah, it's very yeah, clever it's, in a sense. No, uh, oh, as yeah. soon as 
as soon as there is someone, something which excites public opinion because it's linked to firearms or to abortion or to yeah. some, uh, some hot issue, uh, there are all these trolls who enter into the fray, not yeah. because they are defending their opinion, but because they want to excite the discussion in a way which lead uh, no, to this, uh, to this, to hate. They want to foster a, a hate. Mm. So uh, that's yeah. why we need to be, you know, in this kind of universe, you need different uh, rules to maintain your mental health, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Or you just need to get a dog and go for long walks in the woods. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and turn, turn off your computer and your phone. Yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely, what I do. <laughs> absolutely healthy. Absolutely healthy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I play a lot of soccer. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> um, that's also good. That's also good. No, so I, good. you were mentioning it. This morning I went uh, for, for a long walk on the hills of uh, near Barcelona with uh, Nordic oh, sticks nice. and nice. Nordic walking, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, get out of your phone more. I think that's good for um, mental health. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Maybe and, and, and maybe it will help create the cultural shift that we need. Um, yes. Well, yes, yes. I mean, uh, yeah. I could I could make one last example for you, okay. uh, which I use in a in a work for modeling because we uh, most of my activities on the quality of mathematical models, uh, a lot of modeling is used for weather forecast. Okay, mm -hmm. and then we hear tomorrow there is a ten percent chance of rain. We are perfectly capable of processing this information. And we don't blame anyone if it does or it does not rain. We understand that in spite of the large uh, competence and models used by the meteor office, uh, you know, they can tell you chances of uh, this or that meteorological situation. And you uh, are uh, in a sense um, accustomed to this, no? But mm -hmm. in many other fields where mathematical models are used, this is not the case. So if they say there will be so many um, hundreds of thousands of people dying because of this, people tend to take this number at face value because they don't have in this other field, for example, pandemics, mm. the same um, habit, the same kind of use they have with meteorological models. So uh, I would like to say that exactly as we have learned how to live with models of um, of meteo, we may live with other kind of models or other kind of technology. We just need to develop the, the skills and the habits which go with this uh, kind of living together. Mm, well, that's a great point. That's a good uh, comparison. Yeah, you're so right about that. It's, uh, weather reports. I never trust weather reports. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't think that they are, you know, you don't dumb them. You say, oh, these bloody people in the Met office, what do they do? No, we understand that they do what they can with the information. They, they do what can. they can. That's great. what I said. I said exactly. they're, not, yeah. they're not profits. They have <laughs> yeah. data and they make a, um, an educated guess based off of the data. But things yeah, can change. Yeah, exactly. oh, yeah, that's true. So if I applied that to everything else, it probably would be a better world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Even for myself, for sure. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Sotelli. That was very interesting. And um, I hope you come back on. If there's another topic that you'd like to discuss, it would be great to have you back on. This was very interesting. 
thanks a lot, Erin. And, uh, you know, call me Andrea. And uh, yes, Andrea, of course, I will, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks <laughs> okay. for the views. Yeah, no, it was great. It was interesting. I look forward to sharing it. And um, yeah, if you have any other topics, let me know. I like this idea okay. of mathematical okay, yeah, modeling. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, Enjoy. this could be another topic. Yeah. Totally. Course. Let me know. I like to have smart people on here. So um, mm -hmm. that's the name of the game. Most everyone's been smart. I don't okay. think I've had, I haven't had any <laughs> dimwits on here. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Just me. All right. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. Enjoy the rest of your day there. Thank you. And uh, yeah. Okay. I'll be Maybe in touch. talk again. Absolutely. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, guys. I almost said team. All right, team. <laughs> I was a coach. I used to coach um, a little boys soccer team, and they were really good. They were cocky, but they were good. Anyways, I digress. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thanks for tuning in to Causes or Cures. Stick around. Tell me what you thought. You can find me at bloomingwellness.com um, and get to my social media places through that website as well. Um, Share the episode, like the episode, tell your friends. I appreciate all of the word of mouth. It means a lot to me. Um, this is a completely grassroots, totally independent thing that I'm doing, a passion project, so to speak, about things that I care about. So all you guys who listen, thank you. I mean, it, it really means a lot to me. All right. Have a good day. Tune in next time. And also check out some of the older episodes that are posted because, hey, who knows? You might find something in there that intrigues you. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. Take care of each other. Bye-bye.